You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Joseph Wang, who was a former senior trader at the Federal Reserve. So he was at the center of the plumbing of the financial system. So, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this podcast and glad to be here. You have some of the best guests ever. And, you know, I'm really impressed by all you're putting out. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, could you give the audience a bit of a bit of your background and, you know, how you actually got into this business? Because it's very interesting. You know, you actually, you know, you don't, you actually started off in economics and then you also studied law and then financial economics. So could you just talk a little bit about your background, how you found your way into this business and, you know, what was it like actually trading at the Fed? Yeah, so you're right. I have a pretty unconventional background. I graduated college studying econ and math, mm-hmm. but I decided to go to law school instead. Back then, I just thought law seemed like a, you know, nice stable career. You could earn a pretty good salary and all that. And that was true, except that I didn't really like practicing law. It seemed kind of boring. So Practicing law, a lot of it is just kind of doing paperwork every day, and um, it's kind of draining, and it's, it's not that interesting. I wanted to think about uh, how things work in the world. So I graduated in law school back in 08, and basically I graduated right during the time of Lehman. And at that time, I became very aware of what was happening in the financial markets. It's hard for anyone to avoid that, right? Yep. Back then, the Dow was you know teetering hundreds of points a day. People were worried that maybe the banking system might fail. And the Fed was doing all sorts of things that it, it hadn't done before. There was quantitative easing and there's a whole alphabet soup of liquidity facilities. And that really piqued my interest. I didn't really understand any of it, but it just seemed so exciting to be able to think about how things work. And to, uh, I don't know, it's, so I'm sitting in my office, basically looking like page 50 of an indenture uh, agreement that's like 100 pages long looking at uh, whether or not there are extra commas right but uh, it seems so much more exciting to be able to um to think about what was going on in the world so i really wanted to work in the financial markets but at that time it was really hard to make that transition so i was a lawyer at the time and you know the financial industry was not doing well so um in order to make that transition i had to go back to school so i went back to school and got a master's degree in financial economics became a credit analyst And I worked there for for a little bit and saw an opening at the trading desk at the New York Fed. The the opening was in the money markets desk. And I wanted to work in something that was macro and I wanted to be closer to the markets. And so that's that's what attracted me. And being a trader on on the Fed's desk, it's actually not, the trading part is actually not that exciting because the Fed is not trying to make money, right? It's trying to basically be a utility, being a liquidity provider, last resort, so that was not that interesting. But what was interesting, though, is being able to basically be behind the scenes in a lot of things that are going on in the financial markets. The open markets desk is kind of like 
kind of sits at the center of the dollar system. Um, it's the desk that does QE, that does emergency lending facilities and everything like that. It's basically the, the ultimate and a limited provider of dollar liquidity to the entire dollar system. And when you are there, you have, uh, you get to hear what people are talking about. So you have contacts throughout the investment community. You can talk to all the major um, buy-side funds. You talk to all the banks, primary dealers, money funds. You get to hear their perspectives. And you also have an enormous amount of data that, that no one else has. So this is particularly true in the money market space. So the Fed has basically transaction data and all repo transactions, for example. So when you want to talk about what's happening in the repo market, the Fed knows more than anyone. So you get a lot of insight as to, as to what's happening. And that's been very interesting to me and very rewarding. You are able to learn about the system in a way that it's very difficult for you to do otherwise, simply because otherwise it's very opaque. Got it, got it. And then you mentioned the repo system there. And so I wanted to start off by asking you, so recently we've been seeing the reverse repo facility at the Fed. You know, it's, it's transacting at the levels of nearly a trillion dollars a day. So what exactly is going on there and what are you, what is your take on it? Yeah, so I think you can think about this in, in, in a few steps. So first off, you have the Fed doing quantitative easing, right? So they're, they're buying 120 billion a month. And so when the Fed does quantitative easing, it's adding reserves in the banking system. That's true, that's the asset yep. side, but it also adds deposits. So basically there's a lot more money in the system. And, and that's fine, except for the fact that banks actually have a limit to how much money they can hold on their balance sheets. And this may sound strange to you and I, because we can always go to the bank and like deposit whatever money you want, right? Yep. But let's say you're an institutional investor and you have a lot of money. I just can't put like a million dollars in, in Citibank because, well, one is that there's credit risk and the other is that Citibank doesn't want to hold all that. They have these regulations that are called leverage ratios that limit how big their balance sheet can get. So when the Fed creates money and it can't stay on the balance sheet of the banks, what happens is that the banks have conversations with their depositors and say, hey, you know, we, we don't really want your money, but, you know, we have this great product. It's a money market fund. You can put it there. So what's happening is that the Fed is pouring money into the banking system. The banking system has too much money. It pushes it out. It goes to a money market fund. Okay, so money market fund usually will take that money and invest in all sorts of things, mm -hmm. uh, short-term things that are you know credit risk-free usually. So, um, what's happening is that there's not enough bills. So because the Fed keeps creating money and you have the debt ceiling going on, shrinking the amount of treasury bills available. So the money plans have a whole lot of money anywhere to go. So they basically just deposit it at the Fed and that's what it's there for. So the Fed basically um, has this facility being able to absorb excess liquidity into the system and with intention of controlling rates, of course. So if you could deposit money at the RP facility at five basis points, then you wouldn't be willing to uh, deposit it elsewhere at uh, four basis points and so forth. So um, it's supposed to manage the side effects of QB on a quantity level, too many, too much deposits in the system, but also to control uh, rates so that rates don't go zero or below. So in a way, the problem here is that there, there are too many reserves in the system. And so there's- gonna... Well, I wouldn't, so this is kind of a complicated point because you have the system where banks hold reserves as money, but mm -hmm. you who are not banks hold deposits as money. So it's really a problem that there's too many deposits in the system. 
because the banks, they don't actually invest in the RRP, it's the money funds that do. And so the money funds, they hold bank deposits and they put them into the RRP. Got it, got it, got it. And you know, you, you also mentioned, you also mentioned sort of the two most dangerous words uh, in, uh, in monetary economics and that's quantitative easing. And you know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of what, you know, everyone misunderstands. So could you talk about number one, how the mechanics of quantitative easing actually work and number two, does quantitative easing actually lead to inflation, you know, by and off itself? Because there's a lot of debate around that. And so I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. So the intention of quantitative easing is to put downward pressure on longer term interest rates, right? So the Fed as a central bank looks at the world through the lens of rates. And so usually it cuts its overnight rates. Mm-hmm. And when your overnight rates are at zero, then it tries to put down the longer term rates by buying lots of treasuries. Mechanically, what you do is that you're taking treasuries out of the system and replacing them with bank deposits. So for example, if you had $100 in treasuries and then the Fed bought that, then at the end of the day, you would have like a bank deposit at your, uh, let's say, Citibank or JP Morgan or something like that. The difference would be two, there's two differences really. So one is that you had a little bit of yield on your treasury, let's say 2%. Now you have a 0% yielding bank deposit. Mm-hmm. The other difference is credit risk. So used to be, you know, have no credit risk facing the treasury. Now you're facing a bank. And that's usually not acceptable to you or to investors in general. So what they do is they move along the risk curve. So they take that bank deposit and they'll either lend it to a corporation or maybe they'll move further along the treasury curve. And so that's mechanically what happens. And that's what puts um, downward pressure on all rates. So whether or not it's inflationary, I think you can look at it in, in a couple of ways. First, if you, you really shouldn't look at it in terms of the quantity of money, because if you really think about it, treasuries are a type of money in the financial system, right? Yep. So you have like a dollar bill issued by the US Treasury, and you have a US Treasury issued by the, by the same thing. It's just money that pays interest. So what the Fed is really doing is kind of changing the composition of money rather than the quantity. And that compositional change has an enormous impact on people who are institutional investors, right? So if there are fewer treasuries in the world that, to hold, then you know maybe I have to, and I have a like say a return target, then I have to go do corporate debt, for example, and then or maybe move to 20 years, 10, 30 year treasuries. So it causes massive inflation in asset prices. So we see that in the rates complex really easily. Um, I think what you would put and people focus on the impact on equity spot, but mechanically what happens, and you can see this very clear in the data, is that because the rates for term treasuries become so much lower, long dated treasuries, corporations start issuing a lot of debt. And you know, post-quantitative easing, uh, post-financial crisis, the amount of like corporate bond borrowing skyrockets, right? So yep. corporations are borrowing, or borrowing a lot, taking that money and buying equity. So that's kind of a mechanism there that QE is kind of inflating asset prices. But in terms of real inflation, goods and services, you don't really see that, right? And we do this experience throughout the world. Uh, QE's impact is through the financial channel. And I think that has to do with just who it impacts. It's impacting the institutional investors. And you know, so you things that institutional investors buy go up in price. So whether or not it's inflationary, it's inflation for asset prices, and that's pretty obvious. <laughs> yep, yep. And so why do banks actually you know, participate 
in QE because you know they're, they're giving up something that yields one to two percent, and instead they're getting uh, IOER, which is roughly ten basis points or so. So why do they why do they actually do this sort of exchange? Banks, so the, there are changes in how the banks are approaching this. I'll talk about how it was, let's say, before COVID, and I'll talk about how it was recently. So banks actually usually didn't hold that many treasuries. The people who sold the treasury to the Fed were, were not the banks. They were like the investment community and so forth. What's changed so far, and I have a post about this, is that banks are buying more and more treasuries. And this is kind of new. Um, I think what happened was that, like you mentioned, they have IOR that's yielding you know, uh, 15 basis points today. And instead of holding a 15 basis point reserve, they prefer to hold some treasuries. Structurally, what this means is that a bank, a very big bank has something called an HQLA requirement. So they, they're forced to hold a very large amount of very high quality liquid assets. And they're, they're, they can choose what to hold within the HKLA portfolio. In the past, it's largely been reserves, but now it's shifting more towards treasuries a little bit. Um, they hedge the interest rate risk, of course. So, I mean, it, it's, it's basically a, a play on, I guess, I guess one way you can think about this is if you're a bank and you bought a bunch of treasuries and you hedged them into floating, then when rates go higher, then your interest income goes higher too, right? So you get that upside, but on the liability side, there's so many deposits in the system. You could kind of assume that your uh, funding costs will always be around zero. So it's not, uh, I mean, it's a, it's not a bad strategy. Yep. Yep. And you know, the other thing is, so, so what exactly is the role of reserves in the system? So, you know, a lot of people, uh, so number one, the reserve requirement is 0%. So why do banks, you know, sort of hoard all these reserves and, Number two, uh, are these reserves primarily used to settle intrabank transactions or are they actually you know, used to lend in the real economy? Yeah, that's a popular question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so reserves are used, it's a special type of money, right? You can kind of think of it like electronic cash, like in CBDC almost, but you can only hold reserves if you have an account at the, at the Fed, a Fed account. So you can't actually lend it to people who don't have Fed accounts, so that doesn't really work. Um, but banks hold reserves for two reasons, primarily. One is because they have HQLA requirements. And the second is to settle bank payments between banks. So pre-crisis, banks, uh, you know, so during the financial crisis, they had a liquidity and solvency problem. So post-crisis, in order to fix that, the official sector came out with a set of regulations called Basel III. And one of the impacts of Basel III is forcing banks to hold a ton of liquidity. So that way, if there's an emergency, let's say a panic and everyone was withdrawing their money from the bank, the bank will have tons of liquidity to meet that. Mm -hmm. um, so that big HQLA portfolio, it's either going to be held in reserves or in treasuries. And so that's kind of a big driver of, of uh, demand for reserves. But as you mentioned as well, when a bank makes, when a bank settles payments, it's done through reserves. So they have to hold some uh, reserves to settle that. But the major driver these days is just regulatory requirements. And uh, it's, they're fairly, fairly stringent. So like, uh, for example, a big bank like JP Morgan has 3.2 trillion in assets and about $500 billion in uh, HQLA. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's like, you know, 15% of its assets. Got it, got it. 
you know, well, uh, and you know, in times of crisis. So does the Fed in general just pay a lot of attention to specific rate spreads, you know, LIBOR, OIS, and then, you know, you've got the forward rate, uh, the forward rate agreement, OIS, so the FRA, OIS spread, so on. And, you know, could you give some examples of how the Fed would actually go about trying to calm such spreads, you know, when things start to go, you know, crazy, like we saw in March 2020, for example? Absolutely. So you're exactly right that, that those rates, like the LIBOR, OIS, so LIBOR is a, basically a credit risk rate and OIS is a, a proxy for the path of Fed policy. So with the spread between LIBOR and OIS widens, that means there's more uh, credit risk or systemic risk in the financial system. So that's a rate, one rate that the Fed will closely watch. The other is the FX swap basis, which is basically um, how much it costs uh, foreign banks to borrow, uh, borrow dollars using foreign currency as collateral. So that's something it, watch, it watches as well. These are important metrics and the Fed watches them very closely. Um, one is because they're measures of whether there's any systemic risk in the financial system. And the other is because the Fed has a mandate and that's rate control. So when you see short-term funding rates rising, then you know the Fed has you know, maybe not able to do its job of controlling the short-term rates. So that's, that's what it does. And every time you see crises, you see these short-term rates blow up. You saw them during the great financial crisis and you saw them last year during COVID. So during COVID, you saw LIBOR as a spread of OIS widen a lot and you saw the FX spaces widen a lot. And those were directly addressed by a bunch of liquidity facilities the Fed put out. So in terms of the offshore dollar system and which is kind of relying on the FX spaces, FX swaps, the Fed released their FX swap facility, which ended up lending, well, I think about $450 billion to foreign banks. So that's you know a huge backstop. Once you do that, the, the, the spreads kind of shrink a lot. Um, so in terms of like the LIBOR and so forth, the Fed basically provided liquidity for, uh, for the money market funds. And for the foreign banks too, if they wanted to, they had the discount window, but they had the FX swap too. So that was fine. So whenever whenever things like that happen, Fed as a central bank, it's one of its key responsibilities is acting as lender of last resort. So it jumps into action and you've seen it lend hundreds of billions of dollars into the market and uh, it's worked. Yep. It's a lot of money too. <laughs> Yep, got it. And you know, one thing that's also been very controversial is this transition from LIBOR to what is SOFRA. So what do you what are you what is your take on that? Yeah, so okay, so LIBOR is basically an insecure, unsecured rate. It's a three-month unsecured rate. And the way that it's determined, it's that you have a whole bunch of banks in London submitting their what they think that they could borrow at for three months. And then that number is aggregated and you get LIBOR. And during the financial crisis afterwards, it came out that it appeared that some banks were manipulating that benchmark. And the regulators really didn't like that. And so they wanted to have a new benchmark that was more robust and that could not be manipulated. And so they came out with this new benchmark called SOFR. Now, what SOFR is, is it's basically the, uh, it's a repo rate. So it's an overnight repo rate with treasuries as collateral. <coughs> The benefits of LIBOR, of SOFR over LIBOR is that it's it's backed by this huge market. So every SOFR volumes are like a trillion dollars. Whereas there's not that much activity in LIBOR borrowing. So it, it's a thinner, so it's, I guess, 
it's more possible to, to manipulate it. But the thing is, they measure very different things. So LIBOR is a, is a, has a credit risk component to it. So when things go bad, LIBOR goes higher, like during COVID, right? But the, uh, the secured rate, it's different. When things go bad, it, it tends to go lower. So they're kind of measuring different things. And the Fed wants to push SOFR to everyone uh, as a replacement for LIBOR. And, and the take-up has been mixed. The official sector, like uh, Federal Home Loan Boeings or Fannie or Freddie, they're all on board. They, you know, they support the home team. But the private sector, though, not, not as much on board. So you have all these. The problem is that so if you are, if you are like an investor and you are lending someone in in with a LIBOR based thing, right? So that means that when there's systemic risk, you're going to get a higher return because LIBOR risk goes higher, right? So you should receive a higher return because there's more risk in the system. Yep. But if you are lending based on SOFR, then just as you know bad things happen, you get no return. So that's not good for you. Um, so there are some alternative benchmarks created by the private sector now that are trying to uh, trying to replace LIBOR in a way that um, would satisfy the regulators. Bloomberg has this this index called the BSPY, which is kind of like LIBOR, but it takes advantage of its data Bloomberg's data uh, capabilities and does a more robust calculation, and that's getting some interest. So no, we'll see what happens. Oh, of course, one other thing that people don't like about SOFR is that it's an overnight rate, whereas LIBOR was a term rate. So they kind of want to see what, what the forward-looking term structure would be. And there are ways that they're trying to do to fix that using the futures market. Yep. So basically, where the SOFR futures are trading, you can get an implied rate. Um, but that's still in its infancy. Um, no, I think SOFR is really useful for transparency. I mean, it's a trillion-dollar market. If not for SOFR, you really would have no idea where... Uh, how large the repo market is or what rates were unless you were a dealer but it's a different rate than LIBOR and the market thinks that as well got it got it got it so another topic that i wanted to jump to is the what the what the federal reserve is doing in the in the mbs market so could you explain how you know qe in the mbs market works and number two what impact does you know MBS QB actually have on you know the real housing market. So does does that actually uh, influence you know lending in the mortgage market, or does that actually influence housing prices? So how does that work? So that's a good question, and it's on people's minds a lot. So obviously the Fed operates through the lens of rates, right? So when you buy mortgages, you're lowering the the mortgage rate, and so so. The mortgage market is actually like this. There's like a mortgage rate that you and I face, and then that mortgage gets sold to uh, Fannie and Freddie and becomes a security, and then gets sold to an investor. So there's a, there's a there's a and that's what the agency MBS is. So there's a spread between what the agency MBS rate is and what the treasuries are. And when you buy mortgages, you're lowering mortgage rates, and you're also nearing that spread. And what the Fed ultimately wants to do is it wants to have lower mortgage rates for, for everyone, and that stimulates housing. And the Fed first started buying mortgages in size during the GFC because yep. there was a huge dislocation in the, uh, in the housing market. So it made sense for the Fed to buy a lot of agency MBS. Uh, today, it's not that clear what it's doing. But yes, if you buy a whole bunch of mortgages, you have lower mortgage rates. But there's a couple of ways you can do that, though, right? If you just bought treasuries itself, um, maybe the spread between mortgages and treasuries would be wider, but then because treasuries are lower, 
the ultimate treasury rates, the ultimate mortgage rates are also lower as well. So it affects housing markets in the sense that lower rates affect housing markets. Um, so I, I don't think that's a huge impact. It definitely does have some impact, but you know, let's say you're getting a 3% mortgage or instead of getting a 3% mortgage, you're getting a 2.9% mortgage. Mm -hmm. On the margins, maybe people are going to buy more houses like that, but you know, it's, it's, it's a small impact, I think. Uh, but but you're, you're, I think you're, you're right in that it, it does seem strange for the Fed to be buying so much MBS when there's no housing crisis and housing prices are at all-time highs. You could, if they wanted to have lower mortgage rates, buying treasuries would do the same thing. It would just lower treasury rates and then mortgage rates, which are spread to treasuries, would also come down as well. Yep, yep, got it. And so, you know, how much does lending actually drive inflation? So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, QE does not drive inflation and, and you know, real world lending is actually what drives inflation. So could you just talk about number one, what the biggest drivers of inflation are? And number two, what the biggest drivers of commercial bank lending is? So I think of the world in through the lens of money. So whether or not you have inflation depends on how much money you have and who has it. And well, you can, there, there, money comes from two places. It comes from commercial banks and it can also come from the government. Yep. So when you have a lot of commercial banks lending, you, you're basically lending to people who are struggling to spend money, right? Because otherwise they will not get a loan. So that creates new money and that creates spending and you know that, 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 can, that boosts the economy and growth and inflation. But what's happened in the past couple of years is that the government has created tremendous amounts of money. So you don't, you, I wouldn't focus on the, what the Fed is doing, but I would focus what on the treasury is doing. Remember, treasury issuance is a little bit like printing money, right? And so what the treasury has done, it's basically, let's say, printed $4 trillion and spent it. And the Fed took those treasuries, bought them, and changed them into bank deposits. The good thing about this is that when it's a bank deposit, it shows up on the balance sheet of a bank. So you can actually see where all the money went. So when I look at the regulatory funds and banks, you can kind of see just the level of the increase in, in the amount of not just uh, among the institution investors, but among normal people as well. Uh, just with the way that uh, banks report their deposits, there's a lot of different ways they report it. But one of the ways they report it is whether or not the account has $250,000 or more or less. Now, let's say the smaller accounts accounts with $250,000 or less, if you just look at their balances, their balances over the past year have increased by $1.3 trillion. So that's like mom and pop shops and you know people like me and you have $1.3 more trillion to spend. So you don't actually need banks to create lots of credit when you have the government doing like doing it to such a large extent. And you know as you would expect, you have a whole bunch more money in the system. The distribution of it is um, well, it's still tilted towards the institutional side, but the lower, smaller accounts have a lot as well. And you see basically prices rise everywhere. You see housing prices rise, you see commodity prices rise, um, you know, groceries, and of course you see financial prices rise as well. So, you know, you have more money, prices rise. It's, it, it, it is just as you would expect it to be. Um, but you're right that also noting that, and a lot of people have looked at this, and they're saying that commercial banks aren't creating as much 
money as they used to. So the credit growth, like the loans to commercial and industrials are not as much. It's kind of flatlined a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit misleading actually. And it's misleading because there was $800 billion, like $800 billion in PPP loans to small businesses. So that shows up on a bank's balance sheet, but when it's forgiven, it disappears. So if you have $800 billion in loans to businesses, and right now so far about 400 have been forgiven, so that takes away loans on the, on the balance sheet of banks. So the amount of commercial lending by banks is actually higher than you would think, you would think just based on what you see on their balance sheets, because some of the loans are forgiven. And really, you know, if you just got an infusion of $800 billion, you probably don't need to borrow that much right away. Got it, got it. And so the Fed, can, the Fed like cannot legally like directly monetize the debt, right? So it has to go through like a primary dealer, which is typically a commercial bank. And then, so they buy the debt from the treasury at auction and then the Federal Reserve buys it from the primary dealer, right? Yeah, so the, the primary dealer buys it at the treasury auction, like you said, they're not always banks, but they're usually affiliated with the bank and they sell it to the Fed, yeah. Got it, got it. And so what, what so does the Federal Reserve actually care about where financial uh, markets are or where the stock market is? So, you know, there's usually a lot of accusation that the Federal Reserve acts on the basis of how stock markets are trading. And the only goal of the Federal Reserve is to make the markets go up. But, you know, how, <laughs> but how true is that since you work like literally at the Fed? So does the Federal Reserve actually care about where financial markets are or is that sort of a smaller consideration? How, do, how does that work? So I, I think they will tell you that you know, they don't have a target or anything like that, but I mean, obviously they do care. And one way you can think about this is that, you know, the Fed is kind of run by boomers who, who want to retire and maybe they're looking at their 401k every day and, you know, maybe they don't like it when their 401k is, goes down a lot, right? And mm -hmm. they're in a position where they can do something about it. So another way to think about this is the equity market is it's kind of systemically important. Um, you have a, a lot of people who's, um, you know, retirements and savings depend on it, not just individuals, but let's say institutional pension funds as well. And um, you kind of have this policy of the wealth effect that, that was started once upon a time. So when you have higher asset prices, boost sentiment, maybe it encourages spending, maybe that could pick, puts uh, growth and inflation, uh, upward pressure on growth and inflation. So I don't, it seems like it is one of the, mechanisms through which policy is transmitted, just mm -hmm. having higher asset prices. So I, they obviously do care, right? I mean, I think the Fed always kind of leaps into action when you see the equity market go down a lot. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. So uh, also, what is the role of gold in the current monetary system? Because, you know, a lot of people describe gold as a barbarous relic. And then, you know, the other side of the debate is, you know, they're just long gold and, you know, they're called gold bugs. and this is, what is the role of gold? And, you know, why do central banks, you know, have so much gold uh, on their balance sheets? Well, the Fed has a gold bunch of gold on their balance sheets. You can actually take a tour of the Fed's gold vault. Uh, it's wow. super cool. It's uh, seven floors underground. It's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of gold. Um, I don't, I think it's really just a legacy of uh, the gold standard. I mean, uh, so... When you're on the open market, says you monitor things that the, the the Fed cares about, and they never ever care about the gold price or Bitcoin either. So it's not something they think about. Uh, gold 
I mean, people can think of it as an inflation hedge, although I don't know how much what the relationship is. It seems to be more like a hedge against, um, you know, government or systemic risk, right? So every otherwise everything you have is in an electronic entry somewhere, right? It's in a database. What's in your bank account? What's in your broker account? It's just electronic database somewhere that you have no idea. But if you have gold, you kind of have an asset that is outside of the system. So I think it's a good hedge for that, um, along with you know, canned food and things like that. But uh, that's not to say that gold prices cannot go higher, but it doesn't have monetary value today. Yep, yep. Also, another thing is, you know, Milton Friedman is famous for his MV equals PQ equation, where he talks, where he says that, you know, you can, you can typically predict, uh, and, and his famous quote is that, you know, Inflation is everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But then from the 1990s, what we've seen is even though the money supply or the M2 supply has gone straight up, we've seen velocity absolutely collapse. So number one, how useful are monetary aggregates in general, um, you know, uh, in general thinking about inflation? And number two, what has actually caused velocity to just absolutely collapse from the mid-1990s to now, and especially post the great financial crisis as well? Yeah, that's that's a really good observation. So, if you if you thought as they did back then that the, the velocity of money was relatively constant, then you could say, well, if you have more money, you will take it through the velocity multiplier. You'd have you know yep. more growth in inflation. But that that hasn't. I think from 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 my perspective, I think it has to do with just the distribution of money. So, velocity is basically you know GDP over money supply, right? So you only it, it only. But if you have money and you don't spend it in things that produce goods or services, it, it doesn't really show up. So, but you can take money and you can use it to buy Tesla stock, or you can use it to buy other financial assets that don't affect the GDP, but it's still circulating. And I think that change in distribution of money, and you know, you, people can think of it as wealth or income inequality, means that uh, more and more money is held by people who don't spend it on GDP, goods or services. And so the money is still circulating, but it just doesn't produce inflation or growth. It produces asset inflation. If you give a lot of money to um, a millionaire, he doesn't go and buy more sandwiches. He goes and he buys more stocks. He goes and he buys another house. I, I think that's what's happening. So it's not that M2 is useless. I think it probably shows something about asset prices, but it, it probably doesn't show very much about uh, what real economy stuff on this distribution for money changes as it is now. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And, uh, and it, but wouldn't like, uh, so, so a lot of uh, what the a lot of the expansion of money supply has typically been just reserved on bank balance sheets. So how does that actually, how does that kind of actually lead to increases in asset prices? Because, you know, these are just reserves sitting on bank balance sheets. So uh, how does that, how does that cause stocks to go up? Yeah, so the banks don't spend their reserves on equities, obviously. So the focus wouldn't be on reserves, that's the asset side of a bank. It would be on the liability side, the bank deposits, which is the money you and I hold, right? So what the what QE does, it increases reserves in banks, yes, but that's not that important. Banks can spend their reserves on whatever they want, but because of regulations, it's really constrained. So they're basically stuck buying things like treasuries. But for you and I, when we have like money in our bank account, we can go buy anything. And what happens is that, um, so, we have a we had we have a whole bunch of bank deposits. We go and we buy let's say corporate debt or we go buy equities, and the corporations issue a lot of debt to soak up those deposits, and then they go and they buy equities. 
basically it's kind of like a hot potato effect where people don't want to hold 0% yielding bank deposits that have credit risk and they just kind of keep swapping along. And in that process, uh, things like corporate debt and equities and longer term treasuries all rise in price. So, yep, yep. And how much does narrative uh, play a role uh, in all of this? So, for example, Jeff Snyder has talked about how the Federal Reserve uses what he calls expectation policy. And what they do is they go out to these press conferences, conferences and so on, and they say, hey, look, we know we're printing all this money. And then, you know, people start to think, hey, look, the Fed, the Fed is printing money. We might see inflation. And then they go out and buy a car or, the, or you know, the, the market participants, the investors, they start to change their expectations. Okay, the Federal Reserve is behind us. And then they go ahead, they start to buy stocks. And that became known as, you know, the Greenspan put or the Fed put. So now how much does narrative and changing expectation, uh, like how, uh, how much does the Fed matter in uh, narrative and changing expectations? So narrative and expectations are a tremendously important part of the Fed's toolkit. The best type of monetary policy is, is the kind where you actually don't have to do anything, you know, what they say, open jaw operation. So that we can see a good example of that through the corporate credit facility last, last March, right? So the Fed bought about $11 billion of corporate debt. The corporate debt market itself is like 10 trillion. And 11 billion is just nothing. But just by doing that, you know, the market kind of, you know, kind of went into a frenzy and, you know, the corporate market, the corporate bond market illiquidity was just like solved just like that. So expectations and narratives are tremendously important. Uh, more formally, the Fed has something called forward guidance. And what that is, is that it's committing itself or to, it's letting the market know what it will do with short-term interest rates. So usually the Fed just adjusts the overnight interest rate, right? And when, you, when they do forward guidance, let's say they'll say, okay, I'm going to keep rates at zero for the next five years, right? So that basically allows them through the expectations channel to shift all interest rates going forward to let's say zero. So just by saying that and being credible, then they just kind of, without doing anything, they, they flatten the curve tremendously. So um, being having credibility is, is tremendously important to a central bank because when you have credibility, you can move markets without actually doing anything. Got it, got it. Another thing that, you know, uh, that Jeff Snyder has talked about, and Jeff Snyder is gonna come up a couple of times. So you know, Jeff Snyder has talked about how the Euro dollar system, the, the system where, you know, there are offshore dollars, so dollars that are out that are deposited in banks out, or are just bank deposits outside the United States and therefore outside the Federal Reserve's jurisdiction. So uh, he argues that, that that system has created a shortage of dollars because there are more dollar uh, there are more dollar liabilities than dollar deposits. So there is so there's basically uh, a mismatch between uh, dollar liabilities and dollar deposits. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that the dollar shortage thesis as a whole is is valid? So we have to go back, like, like I mentioned, where do dollars come from? Do they come from the government or the commercial banks? When you look at the offshore market, let's say an offshore bank creates a dollar. So at the same time, it creates a dollar liability, it creates a dollar loan, right? So it, it's balanced. So the difference when you're when an offshore bank, so in general, banks match their currency assets and liabilities. So if you have like a dollar liability, you have a dollar asset. And 
the, the thing about the offshore market is the kind of liabilities that you get. So if you are a domestic bank, then you have a lot of retail deposits. And in the time of crisis, the retail deposits stay on your balance sheet. So you know you don't have to worry too much about a bank run. But if you're if you're like a bank in Africa or Asia or in Europe, you don't have these dollar retail deposits, right? So you have to go to the wholesale market to borrow. The, the, the wholesale deposit market is very different from the retail market. So whenever there's a crisis, they're the first types of depositors to run. And so what you perceive to be a dollar shortage is really just depositors that are very sensitive to, to economic conditions. Um, so let's say last year, COVID, there's a tremendous run. If there was a tremendous run in certain parts of the market, then you know um, the retail deposits would stay put, but the foreign banks, they would lose dollar deposits because they're borrowing from the institutional investor community, which is very risk averse. And so that's perceived as a shortage. Now the Fed knows this, and so it actually backs the offshore dollar market the same way, in a similar way than it backs the onshore market. So onshore, Fed plays lender of last resort. If a bank needs liquidity, it has too many outflows, it doesn't have enough um, liquidity to meet those outflows, the bank can go into the discount window, borrow from the Fed, and meet those outflows. Foreign banks usually don't have access to the discount window. So what happens is that um, the Fed has something on FX swap line, which is kind of like a discount window um, for foreign banks. So what happens? Let's say a French bank needs dollars, right? So then it will go to the ECB, and the ECB then would use the FX swap lines and borrow from the Fed. So the Fed lends to the ECB, the ECB lends to the French bank. It's, it's indirect because the Fed faces the ECB instead of facing a bank, but the foreign banks still get supported. So in a sense, the Fed has kind of become lender of last resort to the offshore dollar system as it does to the onshore system. And I think that takes off a lot of tail risk for the offshore system. And um, um, that I think it strengthens the stability a lot. So, got it, got it. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. So the Fed did this in the great financial crisis and in COVID. So, and the swap lines are still active too. So I think that the market perceives that the Fed will be there if something really bad happens to the offshore offshore banking system. Yeah. And you know, what other ways can the Federal Reserve intervene in the FX market? So one, one, one way you mentioned, in a way, it's swap line. So for example, when Turkey last year had a dollar crisis, you know, there, there was a lot of talk about whether the Fed would extend swap lines or maybe they wouldn't. So, so what other ways can the Federal Reserve actually intervene in FX markets? So you want to think about what the purpose of intervening is. So a lot of times it's, it's just really rate control. So the thing is, if you're an offshore bank and you suddenly, all your, deposit, all your depositors are fleeing and you have to go and borrow in the market, that drives interest rates higher and that spills over to domestic interest rates. And so the Fed has a rate control problem. So that it's, it's uh, in, in the Fed's interest to be lending. Uh, that's the uh, rate control aspect. And sometimes there's an FX con aspect as well. Maybe the dollar is too strong as it was, let's say, some in periods in the past, then the Fed can directly intervene, um, you know, just print dollars and sell them. So the Fed doesn't, hasn't really intervened directly in FX for a really long time. Yep. Um, every quarter, the Fed publishes this FX report saying whether or not they intervened and they, they haven't. Uh, they actually do have some foreign currency. They have the Fed together with the Treasury have $40 billion that they could 
in foreign currency that they could, but they, they don't need to. Um, also, I think it's worth noting that the FX policy is not really what the Fed decides. It's the Treasury's policy, and the Fed just kind of does what they, they tell them to. So, but most currency intervention is, is indirect now through the FX swap lines. Now, if there were no FX swap lines last year, the dollar would strengthen tremendously. Yep. But the FX swap lines mm -hmm. kind of put a lid on that. Um, so it's it's more indirect these days. Got it, got it. And so one, one thing I wanted to get your view on as someone who has worked at the Fed, what is your view on inflation? Do you personally think it's transitory or not? And, and and what are the conditions that you think the Federal Reserve would have to see for us to, you know, start, uh, for us to see them start tapering their balance sheet? Well, I think of inflation as really a political choice. So any, any country can create inflation as much as they want, or they can create deflation as much as they want. You want to create deflation, you just raise taxes 100%, interest rates 1,000%, boom. If you want to create inflation, you just print money and spend spend trillions and i think that that's what we're doing right now and it's not so much about economic fundamentals or productivity or all that but if you have a government that is determined to just print money and spend that you get inflation it's really that easy um if you look at a chart of the u.s treasuries um issue okay the u.s debt it's just kind of it's going parabolic and right now you have the senate talking about another 3.5 trillion on top of the one trillion infrastructure that they just passed. So I, you know, it seems like the culture is there to just continue spending. And if you do that, you you get inflation. That's you know, of course, right? Print money and spend. Um, what was your other question? Uh, so, what, what conditions would the Fed have to see for us to see? Ah, uh, yeah, that's the crazy paper. thing. Yeah. So right now, you, you want to look at it globally. Uh, you have Canada tapered QE a while back. You have the emerging markets raising rates. So the Fed is definitely talking a lot about tapering these days. And they probably will uh, soon, maybe like uh, by the end of the year. And they have their views on growth and inflation and all that stuff. But the, the thing is, a lot, of, a lot of what's driving inflation these days is what the fiscal authorities are doing, what Congress is doing. And the Fed doesn't have a lot of control over that, right? If the, if the Treasury, uh, the Congress wants to spend another three and a half trillion dollars, uh, what can the Fed do? Uh, it doesn't have a lot of options, right? Um, so even if it raised rates or even if it tapered, well, Treasury is still spending. It doesn't really change anything. So it, in my view, it seems like this kind of makes the Fed's role a bit smaller than, than it used to simply because it doesn't have any control over what the Treasury does and the Treasury really doesn't care where interest rates are. If you had a private actor and the Fed raised rates, maybe they'd be less barring, but not the US Treasury. It doesn't care. And what are your thoughts on the Federal Reserve uh, talking about these CBDC? So, you know, we've started, uh, we started seeing them in China with the digital yuan and, you know, we had Lagarde talk about the digital euros. So what, are you, what is your take on CBDCs and, you know, how do you think they're gonna, how do you think that's gonna play out? It does sound like, and that sound like um, we're probably gonna get a CBDC. I think that that's a really good question. But when I think about it, when I heard this, I thought it was strange because I don't really understand what the, what the need is. I mean, for me, and I don't know about you, I, I feel safe leaving money in my bank. I don't really have that much, right? <laughs> when I pay my, when I pay, I, I swipe my credit card, payment goes instantly. It's cheap and I get all these points from uh, from Chase. It's great. So I don't really know what the role is. And I, I think though that 
you can think about it in two ways. It depends on the implementation as well. You can implement it like a digital, uh, like a bare instrument, like, like a digital cache, something you maybe put on your cell phone or something like that, that you can just kind of tap and it's gone. Or you can make it like a bank account where everyone has a bank account at the Fed. Um, so in a sense, they have uh, reserves as well. So yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what the purpose is. When I hear the official text talk about this, they talk about things like improving competitiveness, safety, and banking the unbanked, but it seems like that's, I, I don't perceive that to be a big problem. I mean, if you wanted a bank account, there's so many banks you can walk in, they'll give you coffee and they'll make a bank account for you. And, <laughs> you know, the Fed is not gonna do that for you. And I, you have insurance for, um, for deposits so it's not going to make anything safer so I, I don't really know what the purpose of it is and I, I guess what you could think of is is just an additional policy tool let's say the fed has um everyone on cvdc's and they can kind of control what the interest rates are more effectively there's this book by a rogoff about the curse of cash and what he talks about is that you know if you have cvdc's you can do negative interest rates well i mean that didn't work out so great in, in europe and Japan, so I don't know why we're doing that, but yeah, if you have CBDCs, you could do that very effectively. So maybe it's just having more control for the system, which yep. um, you know, which maybe it's good for them, but I don't know about us. You know, when we were talking earlier about QE, you know, you pointed out that while QE has caused asset inflation, what it hasn't caused is real economy inflation in consumer goods. So would CBDCs actually change that? Because you know, if you bank the unbanked and then you give, you know. A lot of these people money well, wouldn't that change that dynamic and make sure that we see consumer good inflation as well so when the government wants to give people money directly they can still do it they do it like you know last year we have these massive stimulus checks that was sent out to everybody cvdc only makes that smoother it makes the implementation smoother we don't really need cvdc's to, to do that what a cvdc could do that like this kind of stimulus program wouldn't be able to is to just really make rates negative or targeted. Like let's say, I know I, according to the IRS, you have, you know, $500,000 in income. So, um, you know, you have a lot of money, I'm gonna make you spend, I'm gonna give you negative 10%. You can make things like that, that gives you more, more policy tools to do that. Um, but in terms of just getting money up to people, you don't really need a CVDC to do that. But it makes it easier for sure. Yep, yep. And, you know, if the government started to directly monetize that, would we see inflation? Because there is actually a school of thought. And, you know, what they argue is that, let's say, you know, the, let's say, you know, the government goes and buys a, an F-16 from Lockheed Martin. And then Lockheed Martin, whatever they get, you know, they just go ahead, put that in their bank account. And then that just ends up as a bank deposit. And hence, you know, we won't really see much inflation. So would, would government directly monetizing that, would we see inflation? And you know, if we started to see you know, post-Keynesian theories or the or you know modern monetary theory, if that became the mainstream, you know, would we start to see inflation? I think how, we, how would that play out? I think I think we already have modern monetary theory and we're already monetizing desk and we're already seeing inflation. It's happening right now, right? So you, you got the Fed buying $80 billion a month in treasuries. You got so we just did four trillion in spending last year. We're gonna do maybe another 3.5 trillion in discussion. So that sounds very MMT-like to me. So um, Fed is going to monetize it. And so it seems like we're already living in that world. And as you, as you know, we're seeing inflation, right? So it seems like we're heading towards that. So 
like I mentioned, I think if inflation is more of a political choice. And if you keep doing the MNT style world, uh, MNT style spending, then you are going to get inflation. There's really no way around that. Um, that would be, you know, it'd be an interesting problem because ultimately, if fiscal spending, massive fiscal spending, is causing inflation, then you you to stop it, you'd have to have massive fiscal spending to stop, and that's a really hard thing to do. And you know, one perspective on you know the Federal Reserve's function is that people say, for example, when the Federal Reserve started buying corporate debt and high yield debt, that sort of creates a moral hazard, so that you know companies can now be a little more careless because they know that the Federal Reserve is going to end up buying the debt anyway. Do you think that is that is something that's real, or do you think that's just you know that's just nonsense? No, absolutely, it's real. I mean, if you have basically what, what people think of the Fed put, then you can take more risk. Uh, the way that the Fed usually deals with things like that, it's through regulation. So um, let's say back in, during the financial crisis, you had uh, the Fed didn't want to bail out Lehman, right? Because of moral hazard, let Lehman fail, and then everything kind of blew up. So then the Fed turned around and started bailing everyone out, right? So what they did afterwards, though, is make it more difficult for banks to take more risk and make them safer. So the, the, the I guess the guarantee is still there. It just makes it more difficult for them to get themselves in trouble through regulation. So um, I think the Fed is, is still going to be there backstopping people. But um, if they perceive an area of the financial markets that has this more hazard problem, then they will just put more rules to make sure that those parts of the market don't get themselves into trouble. Um, for example, uh, prime money market funds. There was kind of a run on prime market money market funds last year, and the Fed backstopped them by providing a money market liquidity facility, right? So the Fed, when money markets needed liquidity, the, the Fed basically helped buy some of their assets to give them liquidity. And now they're thinking about imposing new regulations on prime money market funds so that they don't get in trouble uh, in the first place. So the policy is just more what they would call prudential regulation than they would say pull back the, the guarantee. Yep. And so far we've covered pretty much uh, almost all of the functions that the Federal Reserve does. So what, what are the most common myths that you know, people have on the way central banking works? And could you just talk about why, the, why those are wrong and you know, what's, what's wrong with the, in, the, in their understanding? Uh, well, honestly, I would just in today's context, I, I would say they focus too much on the Fed's balance sheet and not enough on what the treasury's spending, because I think that's far more powerful in terms of uh, just growth and inflation. And and when you're already at the zero bound asset price as well, because the Fed is, it's, you know, can't really cut anymore. And the second thing that I think that people think too much about is uh, there's just no like, you know, secret theory, conspiracy theory or anything like that. There's no Fed buying equities whenever the S&P drops. <laughs> That doesn't do stuff like that. Okay, just to be clear, <laughs> but I would I would just pair that back and think of it as more of a utility than some I don't know shadowy organization. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And you know, going forward, what in your view is the biggest risk to the U.S. dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar's hegemony, or the U.S. dollar, you know, being the world's reserve currency? What's the Fed? I think. So the U.S. dollar is, is the world's reserve currency and everyone uses it. The Fed has done a lot of monetizing recently, and I think that actually helps the dollar status a little bit because it takes up tail risk that one day 
you know, there might be a liquidity scramble. So it takes off in tail risk and actually strengthens the dollar's role as a as a global currency, right? The only way you can dethrone that is actually, um, you know, if there was a great liquidity crisis and a lot of people went bust because they didn't have enough dollars, then they, maybe they would stop using dollars. But as, as long as dollars are plentiful, there's no reason to stop. Um, but fundamentally, a fiat currency is, is built on confidence in, in the system. And I think that if you just really just people don't perceive that the US is being a responsible sovereign, that they're not managing their country well, um, like all the many decades of, of goodwill that the U.S. Has, has built on, built up, could could uh, could be affected. I mean, let's say that you're Argentina or Brazil, and you say, "I want to do deficit spending of twenty percent of GDP." Immediately, the currency would crash, and you know there would be huge market implications. But the U.S. says this, and you know everyone's like, "Yeah, no big deal," because you know we trust the U.S. But um, you know, when one day if maybe that trust is perceived to be not merited then i think things could change seems like we're on track for that got it joseph thank you so much for a wonderful interview and before i let you go could you tell the audience you know where they can find you and more of your work and you know talk about your book a bit as well yeah sure so i write a newsletter called on fedguy.com i'm also on twitter uh, fedguy12.com i write about monetary policy and mechanics of the banking system and the financial system um, basically, I teach people how the system works. Um, a lot of my work, my writings on my blog are a bit more advanced, but if you wanted something that was more accessible, I have this book called Central Banking 101, which um, is meant for a general audience and it's very well cited. So, um, I, so when I first got into this, I didn't really know how the financial system worked. And it's really hard to learn, as, you, as I mentioned, because it's so opaque and so, this is basically a distillation of what I've learned. And it's meant for a broad audience, but for those who are a bit more advanced, I also have a whole bunch of like special boxes that talk about topics that are that be more of interest to a, to a more professional audience as well. Mm-hmm. It's available on amazon.com. Yep, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Joseph. It was wonderful having you. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.